By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is part two of our iron practice discussion. So if you haven't listened to part one, I would recommend doing that right now. And without further ado, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. There's one point that I put right at the start that should have been at the start of the pod, but we didn't talk about. You know, it's like, what things should you be practicing? Well, essentially, it's the same stuff across the board. It's ground contact face contact, face direction, a big three. Maybe path if you want to work on Yeah, shape. we'll throw a little curvature in there on the lower lofted irons. Yeah. With ground contact is an iron-specific thing, obviously. You don't, you're not going to work on that with a driver, so it's, a, it's an added thing. Ground contact can be separated into low point position. So where's the lowest point of your swing circle? If you're imagining the club traveling around your body in a, in a big hula hoop, Where's the lowest point of that hula hoop? And there's also the arc depth component. So you can take that hula hoop and you can dig it deeper into the ground or you can raise it up through the ground. So those two things create ground contact. Or to make it simple, you could just look at the point where your club first contacts the ground. That's how I generally do it. The thing that I wanted to make a point of is two things. Face direction obviously is not as sensitive with irons as it is with the driver. Okay, so if you have an iron in your hands and you leave the face five degrees closed, or you present it five degrees closed, a seven iron might go 15 yards offline. A driver is going to go 50 yards offline for the same error. It's not going to be as sensitive. And in fact, that scales down even farther as you go to the wedges. The same error with a wedge at 100 yards might only go five yards left. 
So imagine you're making the same swing. Your wedge goes five yards left. Your driver goes 50 yards left. So it's just more sensitive as you go up through the bag with the irons. That's something to pay attention to. The good news is with irons, there's no gear effect or it's very minimal. You don't have to worry. If you hock it, you know the face is close to the path. It's not a toe hook that's caused it. That's why I like practicing face direction with irons because it takes out a variable, stops that confusion. It's like ball went left, okay, face was too close. Ball went right, okay, face was too open. It's very, very simple. Whereas when you get to a driver, you have to decipher, you have to pull out or extract. Was that a toe hook or did I just present the face closed? So it's a little bit more complicated with the driver. Any thoughts on that, John? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. I view it as more as the... Approach game is more of a north-south test in golf. You know, the bigger problems are golfers not even getting the ball to the green, and that's more of a ground contact face strike issue. So those are the two skills that you would prioritize with iron play, with the caveat being like as you get to your longer irons, like face direction. So like as you get further away from the hole, so 150 yards out, let's say, as an arbitrary number, then you're going to start it's going to be more of like a left-right game. And then your face direction and and swing path are going to become a little bit more important. But it's still mostly like a north-south question, in my opinion, versus tee shots. It's more of like a left-right, east-west question. Like, can you keep can you keep it in play and narrow the dispersion? And that, you know, you've got gear effect issues with, with face contact. You've got face-to-path issues. There's a lot more that goes into it. So, yeah, the feedback is clearer with the irons because you don't have to worry about that. But yeah, I think if you're looking at your iron practice and saying, how can I lower my scores the most? It's more of that North-South question. Can I strike it better? And can I have better ground interaction? With the caveat being like, as you get further away from the hole, then yeah, we're going to need to worry a little bit more about face angle and your club path because you're going to be missing some greens more left to right as loft decreases. Yeah. Lots of players, I get this email a lot, lots of players now have launch monitors, you know, the Mevo Plus with the Pro package, for example, is a relatively, uh, I say inexpensive, it's still in the range of thousands, but it's less expensive than a TrackMan or a Quad. I mean, it measures in millimeters how far off center you've hit on the face. So I get lots of emails that say, well, what's a good shot on the face? I'm hitting 15 millimeters on the heel. Is that Okay. So I usually say if you're if you want to get pro level, you don't want to be going outside four millimeters either side. There are caveats to all of this, but I don't like seeing it go four millimeters either side. If you want to be scratch plus figures, five millimeters either side. So just a little wider. If you want to reach single figures, I don't see many single figure handicappers hitting more than seven millimeters either side. And then the upper boundary of acceptability is like 10 millimeters either side. For me, even at high handicap levels, if I see it go more than 10 millimeters either side, I'm like, right, we need to recalibrate that a little bit. You might not even hit a bad shot at 10 millimeters off, but I don't like seeing it. I think if if you hit it 10 millimeters off the center and you didn't feel it, we need to improve that skill. Because I can tell you when I'm practicing and I hit it five millimeters off the toe, it feels horrible to me. And I got pretty forgiving clubs. I, I use a hybrid set and my upper irons, my lower irons rather, are T300s, which are quite forgiving. And I have the T100s in the lower set. So yeah, those are for the launch monitor people out there. Those are my boundaries, I would say. And we do have an episode on launch monitor practice. We've got an answer for everything. All right. This was a pretty specific question. 
player has high left misses. So it's it's interesting mix. It's usually a little rarer because yeah, you'd think it would be low left, left. misses. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, left miss is usually a face closed. I mean, again, the rule applies to everybody. Usually, the more left a player misses, the lower. I'm just thinking is. how the the position you'd have to get your body into an impact to add yeah. loft and close the face at the same time. Yeah. Well, usually, yeah, a player might be on the back foot a little bit more. They're going to be scooping it a little bit more. It's going to. It's usually going to be an earlier release because an earlier release closes the face in three dimensions, and it also adds loft. So whenever I hear high and left. There's a 95% chance I'll look at that player and that club is crossing over the lead forearm much earlier. Maybe not before impact, but much earlier than where a pro is. So, yeah, he said that, well, I don't want to open the face address because I'm just, I'll, I'll fix the direction, but I'll just hit it higher and weaker. And that's true. So there's a few options to this player. He could practice a later release because that will encourage both a more open face and more forward shaft lean. So the open face might it will reduce the left shock. The forward shaffling will bring the flight down again. So a later release would be a good one to practice. That is very difficult to learn. I do have modules in Next Level Golf if you want to explore that further. The other option, you could just place the ball a bit farther back in your stance. Probably not the best option, but it can work. Or doing more weight shift. That will get more forward shaft lean and can present the face a little bit more open as well. So more weight shift. So that would be a good option if that player is less shifted than a pro for example if they look at their weight at impact and they're pretty centered or even on their back foot that would be an option i would add skill elements to it as well you know try try and hit it varying amounts of right by doing those interventions by later release and or weight shift so yeah those are some technical options for that player but very specific to that player yes don't, that, that uh, is not a normal mess <laughs> yeah, so I'll send him a PayPal request. After yeah, this. most players are high right <laughs> and low left. <laughs> Where else do we have? Yeah, that's an important point, right? Is if you see the ball go left and longer, and if you see the ball go right and shorter, it's a face issue. You're presenting the face more open and closed. That pattern might not be as prevalent in, in the driver. Right? It's a very iron-oriented thing. Because with a driver, if you present the face too close, sometimes it doesn't go longer because it drops out of the air quicker. But with irons, it usually will. So a player has a draw shot. This can be reversed if you are a fader of the ball. He said, sometimes I overdo it. So sometimes that draw turns into a hook. So how? what is the best way of practicing to alleviate that? Well, the difference between a draw and a hook is face presentation. It's very rare that I would see someone change their path significantly when they hook it left. Usually the path stays the same. But the face closes down a little bit more. So we need to work on the skill of face presentation directionally. So if you have a launch monitor, a quad or something like that that measures face, you can do a little drill where you try and hit 10 balls trying to present the face two degrees open. Then do it trying to present four degrees open. Then do it trying to present six degrees open. So you're building like a geared feel. This is what two open feels like. This is what six open feels like. This is what four open feels like. If you don't have a launch monitor, you can just do that directionally. Stand in the same place, present the face open so the ball goes 10 yards right, then 20 yards right, then 30 yards right. You're building a geared feel. Once you have those in place, you can use those feels to neutralize your hook. If I'm on the course one day and my ball is going 20 yards left, what am I going to do, John? 
I'm going to feel an open face and I know what that feels like. I'd start with feeling it 10 yards open. If that's not neutralizing it, I'd feel 20 yards open. If that's not neutralizing it, I'd feel 30 yards open. I'll find one of those will neutralize the hook. I've practiced those in training. It's not the first time I'm bringing them out is on the course. I've practiced those in training already. Yeah. The mini solution for me would be kind of flashing the face open as the smaller intervention. And then the bigger solution is like, I mean, I, I've spoke about this before, like for me to feel like I need to get a more open face at impact, I tend to think about my trail forearm. That might be a different cue for other people. But again, that's something I practice like intentionally starting the ball to the right. Again, for the player, as you said, it's very important to understand the distinction some people would try and mess around with their swing path and that problem could be solved probably way more easily with just a little club face awareness, whether it's at address or something you've practiced to start the ball further right. I think that would be my preference too on how to solve that problem. Yeah, if you're looking at the actual technical intervention to open the face, it, it could be kind, kind of complex if you wanted to be or it could be very simple like probably what both you and I would do John is just open the face at address a few degrees because we know the difference between a hook and a straight shot is maybe two three four degrees of face presentation so it's not it's not horrible to set up with that face a little bit open before gripping it that's kind of easy oh I'm sure both of us have technical feels that we can also implement if that doesn't do the job for us yeah I just personally feel like the club path thing like yeah you could solve it with a less into out club path but that that to me would be like a bigger on course intervention whereas I'd rather the lesser of two evils would be like the face thing the, the problem with changing path is as you said is a bigger intervention because when you change your swing path you're also going to change low point position yeah and usually it changes club face as well yeah it will it'll change how you present the face yes 100 percent. so yeah i that's why we talk about club face control so much way more than swing path because it, it's that's the glue right like you can make a lot of things work by controlling your club face at impact and having interventions for that versus being feeling like, oh, I'm always changing my swing path. I don't want to play golf that way. That's right. And changing face angle alone tends to only change that variable. So it's it's easy to isolate that variable. When you change path, as I said, other variables change. Angle of attack is going to change. Low point position is going to change. Ground contact is going to change. Face angle is going to change. So it's a much more difficult way of changing direction by doing path for, for most people. Or it's going gonna, it's gonna to throw a spanner into the works, open up Pandora's box more. So learn how to control the face only. Have a few interventions for that. Get really good at that. There it is. At the end of an episode, we just gave you like the top three secret to playing better golf. <laughs> what a shy view. I, that, I view people have heard me for years. I, I say like, how do you get the scratch plus? I'm like, control the face. That was mostly it. That was a lot of it. I sometimes, I, I know I go off on random tangents and I go into things because this is a podcast. We want to go into depth. We want to entertain a little bit, but just to reel it back in a little bit. If someone asked me, what's my philosophy? It's hit the ground here with this face orientation. Yeah, that's it. That's my, that's my <laughs> philosophy. Yeah. And everything else is designed. Strike it reasonably well. As <laughs> Well, even hit the ground here encompasses that yeah, because if you're would. hitting the ground too far away from you as a heel contact, yeah, too close to you as a toe contact. So hit the ground here with this face orientation just encompasses 
the big three encompasses everything we need. The secret to golf, everybody. Congrats. Mm-hmm. You have it now. We'll have to delete that because no one will listen to us anymore because yeah, they've got it. it all in that sentence. We have nothing else. <laughs> Someone said difference between practicing indoors on a mat and outdoors on grass. I'll let you take this one, John. Just be aware of the limitations of the, of the false feedback you're getting on turf. You're going to get away with a lot more on turf than you would on the course. And if you do have the opportunity to practice on grass, then like, yeah, like you said before, you could, you could put some type of physical marker, just having a reference. I think a lot of people when they hit off grass, they don't even like remember where their ball was. So if you're looking at that grass, like throw a tee down, the tee is the easiest thing to do or like a coin. Just like put it in the center of the ball and then after you hit, you could see, oh, I, I started my divot way behind there. Like that's not good. Or maybe for the better player, like you're you're getting that divot in front of the ball a bit more. Divot reading isn't everything, but just the main knowledge that turf is imperfect. A lot of driving ranges have it, outdoors as well. And know that you can bounce the club off of it. And on the course, you might have chunked it and laid the sod over it. It's it's an imperfect way to play golf, to practice golf. It just is what it is. Yeah. The problem with those mats is if you hit, say someone has an inch standard deviation either side. So they their best shots of ball and turf. Their average is one inch behind. And then occasionally they hit two inches behind. So a player is practicing and they're getting those variables. Well, they're going to get good results on a mat with all of those. You know, in fact, their best results might even be an inch behind because you get a little bit of a bounce up effect off the mat, which helps to reduce spin loft. It actually feels quite compressed and the ball flies off a little higher with less spin and goes farther than if you struck it perfectly. Sometimes the range mats, depending on what, which one you're hitting off, will reward a bad contact. And then that same player goes on the grass and they hit same shots, sometimes an inch farther forward and it's perfect. Sometimes they hit an inch behind and then sometimes they hit two inches behind. They're going to achieve very random results now. Those good contacts are still going to be good. Those inch behinds are going to be much worse and those two inches behind are going to be disasters. And then they go off thinking, I just don't get it. My game doesn't transfer to the course. <laughs> I'm great on the range and I'm awful on the course. It's like, that oh, your game's m- transferring perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty much my whole high school career is not accepting the difference between mats and the golf course. Yeah. So, you know, one thing that we've done, John, is get the fiber built mat that at least it doesn't get away from it you know if you hit two inches behind you're not going to get a full-on fat shot but it does hit higher on the face and kind of hurts the hands a little bit so it does encourage you to hit the ground in the right place more so than a, a firm golf mat but you just yeah if you're practicing on mats it's not bad I wouldn't say the people don't go and practice on mats you're going to be better if you practice on mats and if you didn't do anything at all usually <laughs> just realize what its limitations are yeah, be hyper aware of that ground strike. So something you can do, get a divot board. Perhaps we'll put a link in the notes for this or spray the club face and look at vertical contact on the face. Yeah, if you're hitting a few degrees high on the face, uh, sorry, a few grooves high on the face, that's a sign that you're hitting fat. That's a sign you're hitting mat first. It should be that the ball mark should effectively be touching the bottom of the ball mark should be touching the bottom groove on your irons. Any higher than that is a fat shot. Obviously, any lower than that is a is a thin shot. I absolutely noticed that pattern. My most hated pattern is that high heel shot. I always know that I'm catching it fat. And it's more so with my long irons when I'm on artificial turf. 
Yep, that's a good one to know. All right, any more to rifle through as we get to the end here? Well, let's make this a two-parter. We'll add another eight minutes to it, yeah. Irons to be prioritized. What should, you know, someone said, what should I, which iron should I practice? I would say look at your strokes gained. That's going to be the best, the best thing, right? See where you're losing the most strokes in general. And that's the segment that should be practiced more. You know, if I look at my strokes gained, good with wedges, actually good with longer irons. And most of my makeup could be done with the mid-range, that kind of 150 to 175-ish. That's where, which is actually weird because I, on the practice ground, I'm really good with that. Hmm, I wonder what could be happening. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm hitting a little behind it. Actually, that's another point is, look, when you find the strokes gained or the reason for your, your shots or the, the area that you're losing your shots, look deeper into the reason. So I'm thinking, well, I'm losing my shots, one, say, 150 to 175. But actually, if I look at why that's happening, it's all club selection. I'm pretty bad when I go out on the course and it's 120, which <laughs> hit 120 this week in Vegas. That's temperature. John's like, 120 what? 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. Yikes. I didn't play in that, but I'll often play in like 110. Elevation is up and the ball just goes mild. I'm often flying it too far out here. And so it can be hard for me when I get on the golf course. I'm losing most shots in that range because I'm, my distances are off. And that's a club selection issue. So it'd be silly for me to go off and practice strike quality or something like that because that's not the issue. I need to get on the on the course more. And that's, that's my issue is I don't have enough time for that. But yeah, look at your strokes gained and then go deeper and say, why? Why is my strokes gained poor in that area? Is it strike or is it more of a mental thing? Club selection, knowing my distances, judging wind, things like that. Yeah, I think a more advanced, you know, for the player who is willing to get an Arcos or ShotScope or use an app like Swing U or Decade, there's a lot of them now. Definitely, if you really want to be efficient and work on the right things, then yeah, that's, you need to start asking yourself bigger questions and looking at that stroke gain data. My guess would be for most golfers, if we're speaking generically, they're going to struggle more as they get further away from the hole, like that's just the rule in scoring. Like you, you do a competition between a scratch golfer and a 10 handicap from a hundred yards and 200 yards. You're going to see who's better from 200 yards very clearly because that 10 handicap is going to start chunking them, sculling them where the scratch player is going to control their impact conditions more. So a good rule of thumb is, is that most golfers stand to gain more by outperforming or getting better as the clubs get longer. Because it kind of, as we get closer to the hole, we get bunched together more in terms of performance. And as we get further away, the cream starts to rise to the top. So absolutely, you could figure this out with your stroke skeins. I would say most of you, if you're playing the appropriate tees and you're getting shots outside 140, 150 yard shots, getting better at those is going to get you a lower handicap much faster than getting better at those 110 yard shots. But yeah, if you want the truth, definitely tracking your stats and strokes gained and, and digging a little bit deeper. Is it, are they, as Adam was saying, are they strategic errors or are they the big three errors? Maybe you're chunking them more, you're sculling them more from those distances. You're just not getting clean contact because it's harder to do from 175 yards than from 100 yards. So yeah, you could absolutely dig a bit deeper. 
I think a lot of the strokes gained stats now, they track it on a per shot basis and they also track it on a per round basis. So for example, a player might be worse at long irons than they are at their mid irons on a per shot basis. However, they may only hit a long iron once a round, whereas they're hitting those mid mid shots like 10, 14 times a round. And so overall, look at the overall shots dropped per round as well. Yeah. Because uh, that's where you're, you're going to improve the most. Yeah. I think a lot of golfers can achieve that through just decent introspection and like round review in addition to having like the visual stats in front of you. You might not hit a lot of four irons. Okay, great. Then maybe don't practice them much. But if, you, if you're looking back, you're like, wow, I had a lot of six, seven, eight irons where I'm just like not striking it well. There's your answer. Like it, it should be right in front of you. It shouldn't be that big of a mystery. That's why I always tell people like, just take some time after every round and think about what happened. Do not let the information disappear. And yeah, the stat platforms definitely make that easier because then you can go back afterwards and review it visually. It's interesting how instinctively we can come across a lot of the right answers for example if you if you watch how most golfers have historically practiced they do a lot of irons and they are obsessed with distance yeah and they don't practice their putting as much yes and the, the <laughs> old wisdom used to be drive for show putt for dough and then also the, sudden the math comes out and they're like no actually you need to be really good with your irons you need to be really long and putting is just like one of these things that changes from day to day that I'm not saying don't putt, don't practice putting, but it's interesting how instinctively people do go off and practice the right things in a way. They're just practicing the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, you know, you can you can get more granular on it, on it, definitely. But you'll get a good instinctive sense of what you need to practice. I mean, I go as granular with my players as we track strokes gained but we also track where their shot finished relative to their target. Because obviously strokes gained is going to, if you if your pin is on the left and you aim at the middle and you hit it right on the pin, strokes gained will go as, that was a great, great shot. Yeah, yeah. whereas my sh- my stats will show, actually, you hit that a little left. We need to, <laughs> you need to monitor that pattern. So yeah, I've got different ways of tracking these things that bring out more. You won't go wrong by going off and practicing ground contact and face contact. You know, if that's all you did, you're going to be good. But if you're on the course and the main cause of your short shots is poor club selection, then you're not going to get as good as if you went on the course and practiced, you know, forcing yourself to take a club more, for example. We get lots of good tweets from people who are like, oh, yeah, I forced myself to try and hit the back of the green this week and shot my best round ever. I saw another one this week. Yeah, I've gotten so many. Sometimes it is as simple as as decision making and discipline. Sometimes it's not. But I, I want people to at least... Prove me wrong or you wrong first, and then we could think about the other stuff, you know, talking about that taking more club thing. Show me that you can airmail a few greens and then you can adjust your strategy. We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G Shoes, which is their first big release of 2024 and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. 
You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I once stood on a tee. I was doing this kind of corporate event where I was filming and people would come up and they'd, they'd say that there was no yardage on there and they'd ask me what the yardage was. And so I would tell them the wrong yardage. So I, I did two groups. I told one group the right yardage and one group the y- wrong yardage. I told them 10 yards more than it was. And then I tracked how many greens were hit. It wasn't a great scientific study because I didn't like adjust for handicap level or anything like that. But there were a hell of a lot more greens hit. I don't know the exact number because I never wrote it down, but there were more greens hit when I told them the wrong yardage. So I just bumped it up by 10 yards. That's even on the PGA Tour. I remember it was Decade had a stat when tour players have front pins versus back pins, greens and regulations went up for tour players. They went up significantly with back pins because even the tour players, they're, they're so good. They're like, oh, front pin, I'm going to choose this yardage and they would miss more short of the green. Even at that level, it can be sim- simple things sometimes change outcomes significantly. I mean, those you know, a tour player could be half a stroke here, quarter stroke there, and they make a cut. Who knows what can happen? But you know, for everyone else... We're just trying to get you to make smarter decisions. And with iron play, it could be just, yeah, as you say, lie to yourself about the yardage and take some more. I mean, on our, even for a tour level, I know lots of people will say, oh, yeah, but tour players have good short games. They can deal with dropping it short. It's like, no, it's still mathematically. Yeah, it's still, if yeah. You, took a, you want to be on the putting surface. Shot, <laughs> yeah, you take a tour player's shot that's 10 yards long on the putting surface versus 10 yards short and chipping. 
the chipping, they're going to lose half a shot because they're short-sided. It's one of those awkward little chips. Whereas on the green, 30 feet away, that's where their two-putt range is. So they're not yep. losing any shots. Maybe they're losing shots compared to stiffing it, but you know. Yeah, and the same for everyone else. Like I'd much rather have a 40-foot downhill putt than a 20-yard pitch shot uphill. Mm-hmm. And Dude, the stats back it up too. That, right? Yeah, like you're going to score lower in the long run. And I don't want to hear about, well, I have greens that are stimping a 15 and it's like a Mount Everest from the back of the green Still. to the front. Like, <laughs> yeah, I play a lot of golf courses. For- most, most courses aren't like that. They're not that extreme. You want to be on the putting surface, people. You really do. It's very, <laughs> very rare that you'd be better off the same distance off the green than the same distance on the green. Very rare. So, Someone asked, if you only have a net for practice, what should you do? How should you practice? That was our first episode ever. That was our first episode was winter practice. Yeah. I used to hit balls when I first moved into our house 10 years ago. Our basement wasn't finished and that's where I would hit balls. I could hit, I could swing full irons down there. I didn't have a launch monitor and I would just hit balls into the net. And what was I focused on? Strike. strike. <laughs> I was just like obsessed with strike. And I could look a little bit of start direction. Like I knew if I left the face open or closed, I could see a little start direction. I did my best to pay attention to ground contact, but... If you obsessed on strike hitting into a net, hell, that's not so bad. If that's all you were thinking about is like, I am going to solve the problem of striking my irons better. And you got yourself a divot board and you worked on your ground contact and you were methodical about that and did your differential practice and were striking it all over the face. If I took a hundred golfers at him and I told him to do that, I think a lot of them would get better if they were just so laser focused. And if anything, maybe removing the feedback of ball flight that wouldn't distract them as much, that could help too for a lot of players too. So I don't think there's anything wrong with those of you who have a garage or room in your house and you, you don't have a launch monitor, you don't have like a sky track or something like that where you're visualizing ball flight. That's not so bad. It's actually a great, as you said, taking away the feedback of the result is a great way of enabling a person to make swing changes should they need to. So in winter practice, for example, if someone's making a swing change because of injury reasons or, you know, if you're making a swing change to try and improve your ground contact, get some good feedback on it, get a divot board or do what we talked about with vertical contact and then implement your swing focus. Uh, but yeah, just hyper focus on strike location, vertical contact, horizontal contact. Play around with it a little bit. If you're frightened of doing the toe and heel drills in a net because you've got your neighbors next to you, use a foam ball. At least if you shank it, then you're not killing anybody or hitting someone's <laughs> next door window. I once as a kid, I probably shouldn't say this, but it's... Uh, beyond the statute of limitations now but my net sometimes they get a little old when they're out in the rain in britain and i blasted a driver and i was like where did that ball go and then i look up and i see it's gone straight through the net and it's head <laughs> heading towards someone's house 200 yards away i hit the house but i don't think it smashed a window so maybe everyone everyone's okay yeah i did something worse i at my parents front yard as a kid i might have told this story before i hit a ball and I live on a, a not, I grew up on a not busy street that led into a very busy road and I pulled it left and I'm hearing the golf ball cluck, cluck, cluck as it's like oh, going no. down to, I'm like, oh my God. And I hear it hit a car and I go down 
and there was a police car just parked at the <gasps> end of my street. No. Yeah. And I, I just randomly sitting there, I guess he was probably doing paperwork, whatever. <laughs> I run into the house. <laughs> I was like 13 or 14. I run into my house and I hear the doorbell ring. I go downstairs. My parents weren't home. And he's like, were you hitting golf balls? <laughs> I swear to God, it's 100% true. He's like, were you hitting golf balls? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> he's like, you hit my car. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened. Oh, and he's well, he's like, luckily you hit my car and you didn't hit the road. He's like, please don't do that again. I said, I will not, officer. That was an important face control drill. I pulled that ball so hard that it probably ingrained something so deep in me. <laughs> the penalty was so severe, but that that legitimately happened. I hit a parked – thank God it hit his car and not someone in like whizzing by at 40 miles an hour. Yeah, yeah that we happened that, when I was a teenager. We call that constraints-led learning. Yeah, exactly. Learning literature. <laughs> my story on that is when I was in Austria – I went out with my girlfriend at the time. She was just learning, learning golf. And I decided I'll go out and play left-handed because I was actually teaching a bunch of left-handers that week. And so I'd, I'd done a few demonstrations. And I thought, maybe I'll just try this for a little bit, see what it's like to play on the course, experience that. First few holes played all right. Didn't, didn't make too many pars, but not many awful errors. Got to the last hole. And this is Austria now, so you can imagine how hilly it is. This tee is probably about, I don't know, I'm saying 50 to 100 feet higher than the green. It's vertical. You're looking down. You're craning your neck down, chin in your chest to view the hole. And so I was like, oh, I can't wait to play this. Hit the shot. Shank. I'm like, oh, dear. I look up. The ball's going left. Next thing I know, it hits the road and I hear this crash. I'm like, oh, God, what have I done? I see everyone run out of the building and look up. I go down and the ball has gone through the pro shop window. And so for that entire week, everybody's coming into the pro shop, seeing this smashed window because it was a unique window. I can't remember what was unique about it, but they couldn't replace it overnight. So everybody's coming into the pro shop and saying, oh, who smashed your window? And they're like, oh, it's just Adam, our coach. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful control. It was a little embarrassing for that week. Yeah. (laughs) Practice in your net strike quality as you said direction you can do a little bit the yeah, danger you, you with could network see it. you could see it a little bit yeah the danger with network is that you, you're not seeing the full ball flight so you can't see curvature however because we know that mainly when we hit an offline shot it's face direction that's caused it and start direction is very highly correlated 75 percent or more sometimes to face direction so What you can do on your net is get a little bit of paint and actually paint down a a nice thick line down your net, maybe a few inches wide, and try and start that ball into that white line. And you know if you start left of that line, your face is probably more closed than usual. Start right of it, face is more open than usual. So there is a little bit that you can do with direction that is very highly correlated to the most changeable factor, face direction. Yeah, I've seen some people get very creative with that. I think our our mutual friend Hutch did some, he's got a very engineery mind. He like, I, I think I saw something on Twitter. He put like multiple things. He could kind of start, move the ball in different start directions, hitting into a net in his garage. I've never gotten that creative. I've just been more like, oh, that was really far to the right. Your face was open. (laughs) Maybe close it a bit. (laughs) Yeah. 
my claim to fame is miniature claim to fame. It made me famous in my own head anyway. <laughs> I was filming a video for Next Level Golf on start line and I put the I did the alignment stick in the ground. So this is in a real range. I put the alignment stick in the ground and I said, this is trying to hit it. What happened? First one smacked straight into Clank. it. Take, take it out, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's a good drill as well. But the other thing, psychologically with a net, there can be very large difficulties in transferring your skills because obviously when you're in a net there's no we call it contextual interference there's no target there's no result our focus is different our locus of attention is different often we're more in a an internal bubble so the two ways around this are either one understand that when you go back to your normal shots on the range where you see a target where you see the result understand that there may be an initial period where the transference doesn't occur you may hit it a little bit worse it's going to feel different i remember every time the, the first time i started practicing indoors a lot and then i went outdoors you know i probably practiced three three months indoors and then i went outdoors i felt naked it felt like oh my god where's all these things around me it felt naked and i couldn't tap into that same feel so just it does go away and the more you go in and out between the two context is net to real net to real the easier it is for your brain to manage those differences the other option with that is try to maintain the same focus on the course as you have in your net so when you're on the golf course just imagine you're back in that bubble again and try to hit with those feelings easier said than done but it is an option for people as well so those that's the psychological difficulty with net practice yeah same for me the first time i ever hit balls in a simulator when I got out on the course in the spring, it was just an absolute disaster because I built up a lot of false confidence, was not being realistic. And now, I mean, over a decade later, yeah, that now that I hit balls in the winter inside, I can go out fresh in the spring and not feel like I've lost much. But that took a lot of, as you said, being able to keep the focus the same, the expectation level. There's a lot of stuff. But yeah, if you're doing iron practice into a net at home, like, there's some good that can come out of it, but also there are like limitations and how you focus is incredibly important too. Because again, you could just fire ball after ball after ball because you're not paying for them. You could hit a thousand balls down there and, and build a lot of false self-confidence, unfortunately. So that's the downside to it as well. And when you're practicing as well, it's this applies to both network and real practice. I've got a little note here. Try and treat it like you're on the golf course in a way. So pick a target. If you can do a routine, that's, that's a great thing to help with the transference. And actually analyze the shot afterwards and record the data on the range. Very few people do this, but I'm, I do this on an unconscious level. I don't actually write it down, but for people who don't do this at all, it can be valuable to just write it down initially. So lots of people in my eight-week course at the moment, you know, our standardized test was hit a shot and note down how was my ground contact? Was it within ranges? How was my face contact? And what was the direction? And everybody's like, you know what? I've listened to your podcast over and over and over, but I've never actually done this. I've never actually recorded it down. And it's so valuable and insightful to see at the end of this oh my god my ground contact really sucks today so it really directs your focus and gets you focusing on the big three but also gets you understanding which one you need to improve as well easy to understand in concept harder to apply yeah well even myself like i said i don't i don't go through the rigmarole of getting a notepad out and noting down these things but i do always keep a mental note 
that was a little out of the toe. That was a little out of the heel. And I'm good at accumulating that information and saying, right, there's been quite a few toe shots there. Let's go and work on that. Yeah, same. It's always the same to me as like, I always think about poker players when they see the flop or the turn. I haven't played in a long time, but you know, they just internalize that information much more quickly and make a decision faster. Whereas in the beginning, it was harder to like their minds busier. So these are things like, again, these are simple concepts we're telling everyone, but it will take the habits, ingraining the habits, the discipline and paying attention so that as the months and years go by, then it's like, oh yeah, yeah, that's much easier for me to absorb all of this mentally than it was 10 years ago. It took a lot more brain power. Yeah. If you have never gone through the act of hitting a shot and then writing down how was my ground contact? How was my face contact? It could be as simple as a, just a little tick if it was good and a cross if it was bad. Or it could be more granular. You could say, right, that was two inches behind. That was five millimeters off the toe. But write something down. And I guarantee you that simple act of doing that for 10 or 20 balls, you will learn something from it. Don't just listen to us. Actually put it into the stuff into practice. John, have you ever used a blade? Blade as in like iron blade? Blade irons. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not, not like not a- shaving. No, like, we, haven't, I mean, we haven't got our Manscaped sponsorship <laughs> just yet. I've Who's gotten there? a straight, one time at a barber shop, I got a straight razor, you know, an old fashioned, like, I didn't like it. Yeah, yeah. It really, I have like very, I don't know who the hell wants to know this, but a very thick facial hair and it really irritated my skin. So that and was now the from only- our sponsor, Gillette. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You get Gillette out in America, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. I actually use a, I'm onto an electric razor now. The new ones are awesome. Anyway, I have hit balls <laughs> with blades. You know, I know we get asked a lot. I don't know if you're alluding to this. People be like, oh, should I go practice with a Mizuno whatever blade iron, even though I'm playing a game improvement iron? I don't know. Maybe for some, as we were saying in part one, now now part one of this as we've strongly turned this into a two-parter. I think for some players that could demoralize you practicing with a blade. I play the first PXG generation ones, which were like the first I don't know, technology game improvement blades. I don't know if that's fully accurate, but I think they did something different when those came out. So they're forgiving, but they're still a blade. So yeah, they're like moderately challenging. I mean, I don't take out like a seven iron from 1965 and hit it. So not really. I hit moderate blades is my answer, my long-winded answer. Have a look at this beauty. So listeners, I'm, I'm currently showing John an iron, a cobra iron. These were the Ricky Fowler ones, you know, the copper colored yeah, that, heads. That the is a sexy King looking golf club. Forge M8. Pure blade looking thing. So I bought one of these. It's a seven iron. And yes, I actually practice with this blade. I find it really improves my sensitivity for face contact. I don't need that as much because I'm getting constant quad data. You know, if I hit a shot, I can immediately look and say, oh, that was five millimeters out of the heel or toe. With the clubs I play with, the Titleist T300s, they're so forgiving. I don't get that good feedback. And if I didn't get any feedback at all, I could really see myself getting into some bad strike patterns with that. So I ended up buying this blade club and I occasionally practice with it because it heightens my sense for strike quality because just a few millimeters off with this feels horrible. Uh, and there's actually something else I've done with this. I've made it three degrees more upright than my regular irons. Now, the reason for that is I tend to miss, if I miss anything with my irons, I miss them left. 
So having this club three degrees more upright means I miss even more left with it. So when I practice with this club, I actually unconsciously learn how to weaken my grip and present a more open face. So practicing with this club improves my strike quality from a more unconscious perspective and improves my direction from an unconscious perspective. So we call that a constraint. So that is a very esoteric way of improving just by getting a sort of gamer club. You'd want to make sure that the club as close as possible matches your set. So I make sure that, you know, this club, my, my error with that club is a toe pattern, just like my real clubs. And the weight feels very similar as well. So you want to make sure those things are in place. But yeah, it's a unique way of learning. We call that constraints-led learning. It allows me to be very conscious about the target and not think too much about my swing while at the same time improving and refining my swing. Kind of like when I worked with that DSC compressor for a year. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> that was tough. I know you that don't you like that. I, yeah, I yeah. loved it. But it was great for me. I've heard, I've heard it was hard. Reviews. It was hard though. It was really, I mean, you shank it, pull it 40 degrees to the left. It, it was a really tough test. Yeah. I've also got a, a club called a P2P. It's that really small headed iron. So it really, it's, it's tiny. It's like the size of a golf ball. So if you're a little off with it, you could completely miss the ball. So that's a good one to practice with as well. The only problem I found is that. It doesn't closely represent the real golf because the sweet spot is going to be closer to the shaft. And so I'd be a little wary of giving that to a shanker. I know Martin Chuck developed a training aid. Oh, God, I forgot what. You remember the one with the the bottom, the sole cut out of it? The Tour Striker, yeah. Sorry, that's his his entire brand. I would say the Tour Striker is a less difficult version of the DST compressor. Right. I guess the the difference between the two is is that you can't really cheat the DST compressor and the Tour Striker. You could get away with more, so probably more appropriate for more golfers. Whereas the DST was like, you know, they had like a pitching wedge. I was using the seven iron version, and the pitching wedge was not as hard of a test. It got hot for a while. No one really talks about it anymore. But it was of all the training aids I've used, it was very appropriate for me, but not for everyone. But yeah, that, I mean, now we're veering into training aid territory, but yeah, it's, it's hard to know which one is right for you. There's a few that I do like, but it's, you know, when people ask me like, which one should I get? And I'm like, I'm not sure if this one solves your unique problem or if it's hard enough for you or it's too easy for you. It's very difficult. Like I do think there are really good training aids out there, but there aren't really good training aids for everyone. Is the way I think about it. My friend Anthony McCarthy, we'll have to have him on the podcast at some point. He gave me a picture of something he did that was quite unique. He had a shanker. And so what he did is he got one of those rubber tees, you know, those triangular rubber tees, and he actually glued it to the shank of the club. Oh. Or sellotape, <laughs> and wrapped it around. Nice. So this player then went off and practiced with that club. And anytime it got minutely close to the heel, it would hit this rubber tee and it would feel different, sound different, shoot off to the right. So obviously if you practice with that, you, you you're quickly – highlighted when you're getting out of parameters so that's something unique that people could do how about we come up with something that mildly electrocutes you as you veer away from the center of the face it would work it would definitely work but i don't know how ethical it would be i'd have to put it (laughs) under your brand it'd be like one of those (laughs) invisible dog fences which shock golf you see that they you just put a collar on you and we'll shock you every time you go five millimeters out of the sweet spot. 
tagline would be play shockingly good golf. <laughs> <laughs> investors possibly you yeah yeah listen to this all right we're veering way off i got two other ones yeah okay. one's a one's a finisher okay a mortal combat finisher uh and the other is just a, a little question so someone's asking what's the best way to do differential practice should i hit like five off the toe then five off the heel and five off the center or should it be more one 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 so more random i think this rule applies to other things as well is i tend to stick with a task until you're doing it successfully around seven out of ten times and i would stick with it in blocked format until you do about seven out of ten successes once you get into seven out of ten success rate the task is too easy so now move to a more random task. So yeah, as a beginner, if, if you're doing the toe and heel drill as a beginner, I might ask a beginner to hit 10 in a row from the toe, then 10 in a row from the heel. But once they get to that 7 out of 10 success rate, I might be adding more variability. It might be, all right, hit 5 in a row from each now, then hit 3 in a row from each, and eventually you get to the point where they're hitting 1 from each. They're completely mixing it up every shot. But this could apply also to if you're hitting targets, so what's the stats for irons, for the spread, for tall pros? About 40 yards, is it, with irons most of the time? I mean, it depends. The number I always start with is 100 to 125 yards, like a middle-of-the-road tour player is like 20 feet from the pin, which is... Yeah, you know, but the spread of shots. The spread, so I mean... Acceptable shots. Is well, then you're going to double that because then it would be yeah. the diameter of that circle if I'm remembering my geometry class. So what is that, 16-ish yards? 15 yards with a wedge in their hand. So if you get to a seven iron, it's going to be wider. I don't know it offhand, but it's wider than most people think. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So I'd say once you're getting, you know, if you're hitting shots to tall level, which isn't as good as you think for, for most people. I mean, they hit, they hit a lot of good shots, but they hit a lot of bad ones as well. Once you're doing that seven out of 10 times, switch it up to more random, make the task a little bit more difficult. So if I'm standing there, I, I know from 170 yards with a seven iron it's around about 10 yards away right 30 feet away is about tour average so if i'm hitting more than seven out of ten within that range i need to switch to more random practice similar with a driver right you've got 30 yards either side with the driver you've got a 60 yard circle if you're standing there block practicing it doing it over and over again hitting within that 60 yard circle you need to switch to random practice i think to encourage more difficulty more realism do a routine switch the club each time things like that so that's my answer to that one switch it up as you get better add more contextual interference add more realism love it i have nothing to add right my finisher someone asked about consistency <laughs> you want to end the episode with consistency we're going to be here for another hour no, I'm just going to give a few iron-specific ones. So, number one, make sure your low point is in front of the ball. You are not going to be a consistent iron player if your low point is behind the ball. Number two, reduce any extraneous movements. Now, you probably need a teacher for that to understand what, what it is, but an example of that would be silly amounts of head movement or being out of balance, crazy out of balance. You don't want, it. You don't want extraneous movements there. Add movements, this is the third point, add movements that give bigger margins for error. So things like having your hands working up and in through impact. Obviously, don't do that on the course the first time. It's something you would train, but that can improve your margin for error as well. It allows us to get away with a little bit more in the ground contact. How else do you make yourself more consistent? Repetition is key. You know, if you've beat thousands of balls with the same 
thought processes, the same general motion, you're going to be better than someone who's switching their motion up every week and hasn't done as many, many reps with that motion. Lowering conscious thought as well. If you think too much, you'll make yourself less consistent. Now, sometimes increasing conscious thought can be good. If you are shanking it, you might need to increase your conscious thought and direct your attention towards hitting more out of the toe. But generally, if we lower our conscious thought, our motions are going to be more consistent. Increase good variability from an unconscious perspective. So doing the drills that we talk about, differential drills, toe, heel, that increases good variability from an unconscious perspective. It also increases good variability from a, a conscious perspective. So in other words, you can fix errors quicker. So me and you, John, if we ever shank one, it takes us one shot to fix it. We're not going to shank the next one, right? But the average player who's never done differential practice, they might shank one and it's like, oh God. <laughs> then they shank another, then they shank another. And then it's like, I've got to get off the course. Like you don't want to be in that situation. So do some differential practice because it improves your consistency. And then the last one is kind of reduce bad variability. This is given too much credit, but, you know, keeping similar ball positions, for example. Yes, you're reducing bad variability by doing that, but you also want to be able to have some good variability around that, as we've talked about. Generally, keep a good ball position, but practice a little either side of it. So you're prepared for that. But the other things could be similar rhythm, tempo. If you're doing that, you're inputting similar forces and torques into the club. It's going to react more similar. So that's why old school thinking like, oh, just keep a nice, easy tempo. There's probably some more advanced reasons why that would work. So those are my ideas on consistency. That's a tough word. I'll try and keep my closing thoughts simple on consistency. I think we have to accept that the outcomes in golf are not consistent. And I would absolutely say for everyone who's read my book, The Four Foundations, the feedback I get from everyone who seems to love the book is from the first section where I talk about all those outcomes and what are reasonable. So once you accept the inconsistency of the outcomes in this game and be more consistent with your habits and all the things you do on and off the course, then you can tighten up those outcomes, but you never have full control over them. So, you know, wrapping up this episode, if you can be more consistent with introducing maybe some of the ideas we gave you, these better habits during your iron practice, and, and quite honestly, all clubs in your bag, because we started this series by saying iron practice is kind of like fundamental. It can transfer over to everything. You start being more consistent with the inputs and if they're good inputs, then those outcomes start to tighten up a bit. And you just understand that you're not in full control of them and you will be inconsistent on a day-to-day -day basis, but we're looking for trends over time and you start tightening up those dispersions a bit, hitting a few more greens, the handicap's going down. But there's some days where you're clanking it, you're chunking it. That's golf. Yeah. There's no such thing as consistency. Yeah. It's really. a very it's a very loaded word in golf. We've probably talked about it on so many different episodes. It's I think it's one of those words that because people define it so differently, it can really shape your experience in the game. Like everyone says, Oh, I want to be more consistent. I'm like, You are. You're presenting this like slice pattern all the time. That's consistent. <laughs> mm -hmm. But you're inconsistent with what you want out of the game and how your your habits are. You're you're haphazardly practicing and picking targets so yeah it's a loaded word those are my thoughts on it i guess yeah is that it we wrapping up here I'm done 
We've done it all. Mortal Kombat finisher. <laughs> <laughs> you win. I never played Mortal Kombat. It was a well, street great fighter for me. I was both. I was definitely a street fighter kid. Loved, I said Ryu, Ryu. I always forgot how it was pronounced, but that was my guy. I'd say I was 80% street fighter, 20% Mortal Kombat. That was my, that was my oh, breakdown. Full of it. Everyone in my house <laughs> would beat me at it, so I didn't oh, I was obsessed. <laughs> anyway, that's the big finale to our Iron Practice two-parter, Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat. <laughs> so, John, where can people find you? You can find me, Four Foundations of Golf. Check out my book. Check out my video course, Practical Golf. Hopefully, it's relaunched or relaunching by the time this episode airs. If not, we've got a big relaunch coming. So you can check me out on those and, or chat with me on Twitter at Practical Golf. Adam, where can everyone find you? The Practice Manual is where I discuss a lot of these practice methodologies. That is the book on Amazon, the Practice Manual. For people who want to improve their direction more, the Accuracy Plan. For people who want to hit more greens in regulation, reduce fat, thin shots, the Strike Plan. And you can get all of those on adamyounggolf.com. As always, thanks for listening. Appreciate the questions and the feedback. And we will see you next time with a new episode.